Welcome to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran, a ministry of Worship Generation Church in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please visit us at www.worshipgeneration.com. Now let's join Pastor Joey as we study through the Bible. been replaced by David, and that's where we pick it up tonight in chapter 11, verse 1, and we'll read the text, and we'll go right into this, this great King David and the kingdom that was entrusted to him. Then all Israel came together to David at Hebron, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore, all the elders, that is, the leaders of Israel, came to David there, the king in Hebron, and, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. That would be Samuel the prophet. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jebus, where the Jebusites were, the inhabitants of the land. They were Canaanites, as a footnote. But the inhabitants of Jebus said to David, You shall not come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said, Whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And Joab, the son of Zariah, which also happened to be David's nephew, went up first and became chief. And then David dwelt in the stronghold, and therefore they called it the city of David. And he built the city around it from Milo to the surrounding area, Joab repaired the rest of the city, so David went on and became great, and the Lord of hosts was with him. Now, verse 10 is our bonus text. Now, these were the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom, with all Israel to make him king, according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So this is that historical record of David becoming king, the kingdom of Israel being entrusted to him, and the foundation of it. Now, we go forward in the next couple chapters. There's more David, more the administration. Eventually, we'll get to Solomon and his stuff. But this is such a key point in time in Jewish history, plus really human history, because David is, of course, one of the greatest kings that ever lived. Now, in this passage, we saw there that they came to make him king. Now, previously, as a teenager, he was anointed by Samuel the prophet as the future king of Israel. In fact, before he was... Samuel the prophet had spoken to Saul in his rebellion, when Saul was rebellious. He said, the Lord has rejected you and chosen another more worthy than you. Then he went to the house of Jesse there in Bethlehem. And as the sons of Jesse came before him, you know, he, he thought, oh, this first guy, he's the guy. And the Lord said, no, the Lord, the Lord looks at the heart. Man sees with his eyes, but the Lord looks at the heart. And then eventually David was called in. He was shepherding the sheep at that time in the field. He was brought in. And there Samuel, the great prophet, anointed him as king. Now, after Saul died in the battle at Gilboa with his sons, it would be seven and a half years before David would be the king of the unified Israel. So there really was a divided kingdom even then, like we've seen previously in 2 Kings with the divided kingdom. 
And it was during that time that the tribe of Judah, which of course was in the south, they recognized David as their king and they anointed him as king of Judah. So for seven and a half years, he reigned as king of one tribe, Judah. And so this text tonight takes us forward where they're anointing him as the king of all unified Israel. And so it's actually his third anointing with oil to be king. One was prophetic, the second was partial, but this is the fullness of things. And it does remind us that, you know, the Lord's will does come about and he'll bring it to pass. It always comes to pass. Uh, Ultimately, those sovereign things that the Lord has. And there's a lot of sovereignty on David's life. Key phrase, though, is that they anointed him king. And then in verse 10, it says, the men that surrounded it with him, in his kingdom. So we have a king and a kingdom. It's also the covenant of God in the Old Testament, the people of covenant, the Jews. And here they are on planet earth. They're, they're an ethnic people group, descendants of Abraham. They're there in the promised land, surrounded by enemies, perpetual enemies all the time, told to be governed by God's word, to even be led by his spirit, to obey him and be fruitful and prosperous and good things would happen, to disobey him and do the same thing as the Canaanites, bad things would happen. And as always, God has the final say on those things. And this really was a zenith for the nation of Israel. This was such a great time under the leadership of David as their king. Now, as we go forward for the next couple of chapters, we'll see really the leadership of David. And that's thematically when we look at this passage. This passage is a great passage about spiritual leadership, or we might even say, because he's a king with a kingdom, kingdom leadership. And maybe tonight here at Worship Generation, you're saying, well, I don't lead anybody. And I would say, you should. The church is called to lead the world. The world shouldn't lead us. Don't let your TV set and your laptop lead you. You lead yourself being led by the Lord to do the things God's called you to do. And as we're led by the Lord, we'll naturally inspire others to be led by the Lord and follow the Lord. Salt and light is being led by the king and inspiring others to do the same thing. And that's how we're to be. So all of us need to put ourselves in a mindset of the leadership in the human experience. Because there's 8 billion people on this planet. And very few of them are are going to heaven. Because Jesus said, wide and broad is a path that leads to destruction and many go thereby. But narrow is the gate that leads to life and few enter thereby. Our primary purpose in the human experience coming to Christ is to be saved by the gospel, to live the gospel, to present the gospel. And our ultimate driving force as a church is the Great Commission to win people to the king for all eternity. So we're all called to be leaders. We don't have to manufacture leadership. If we're just being led by the Lord, he will use us to lead others, especially in a generation that wants to hire private mentors everywhere to be life coaches. If we're simply led by the Lord and we have the fruit of the Lord in our life, we will become men and women of influence no matter where we came from. I think of my sister living on the streets for years as a homeless person, alcoholic, and all of her situation. The moment she chose to get right with the Lord and go to rehab and complete it, and then live in one halfway house for a year with 20 women in San Diego, graduate to the next house, halfway house for another year with five women, she became more of a leader. And she became a leader to those other women. That's how it works. And even now, when I was in Florida with her just a few months ago, or actually six weeks ago, driving back to Melbourne Airport from Vero, she's like, I'm just trying to figure out my con. I'm like, Barbie, you sharing your testimony, AA, NA, Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, anywhere, everywhere, any rehab group, you have the high ground. You're an inspiration to everyone. Lord, give my sister a bigger vision of her life at 55 
and what God can do. So I use her as an example. We're all called to lead, to be led and to lead. And that's how we're going to look at this text tonight. We're called, all of us, anyone who comes to Christ, the moment you might have been a, a follower of the worst people ever before you come to Christ. But when you come to Christ, you're now being led by the King of Kings, and now we're called to be led by him so we can lead. And that's our context tonight. So we're going to talk about kingdom leadership tonight for each one of us and those things that make us really good leaders for the human experience, for the human race. From this text, our points from this text, obviously there's many things that wouldn't be in this text, but from this text tonight, and I want you to really think with the Holy Spirit guiding us what that looks like for each one of us to be kingdom leaders for Christ. The first thing we see here tonight is that David was called to be a shepherd. The people came to him and said, the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel. And the first profound thing that we see about being a leader for the Lord in the human experience is to have a shepherd's heart of the Lord. Again, when God chose David, he affirmed to Samuel that David had a heart for the Lord. And as we go forward in a relationship with Christ and we're transformed from glory to glory, God is wanting to put in us his heart for people, for humanity, to have a shepherd's heart. This is the lifelong journey that we have to get past people that hurt us to get past irritants, frustrations, agitations in the human experience, and just to continually pray for people, people that come and go, people that come and stay, and all the human experience, the people we're closest to, the people that have wronged us, that we just, they're gone in eternity, we can't even make things right with them, but our heart can still be right toward them in memory. Like, just really the human experience in Jesus' name, in general, but specifically to lead anyone, who's got a greater place to lead than someone who has a, a good heart with the Lord and is right with humanity all around them. Isn't that the kind of person people are drawn to? Why are people always drawn to Jesus? Part, obviously, he's the son of God and sinless, but his compassion and his empathy, the woman caught in adultery, the blind man, the desperate man for his son, the Roman leaders, they were all drawn to Jesus because he had that shepherd's heart. David is the one that's really introduced to us first in the scriptures with the shepherd's heart. Now, Abraham was a shepherd, too, because he had flocks. Now, concerning David, we know that in Psalm 23, he said, the Lord is my shepherd. And he had this description he described of his relationship with God, that as he's a sheep, led by the chief shepherd. He kept that with him his entire life. The Lord even used that in Psalm 78 to describe David, how he pulled him from the sheepfold and made him a shepherd. So God literally took a sheep, David, and made him a shepherd for his people. When David sinned and took the census and the judgment came upon the people in the latter part of his life, he said, God, may your curse be upon me and my household, but not upon your people, these sheep, these innocent sheep who had nothing to do with it. That was David's heart as a shepherd. Tuesday, we looked at the John text in John 10, where Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. But another text that's really good for Jesus as a shepherd is in Matthew 9, when it says he looked upon the multitude and he was moved with compassion because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. So the world doesn't need unregenerated life coaches and unregenerated mentors. What the world needs is sincere men and women who are filled with the Spirit and serving Jesus Christ and have the hearts of shepherdesses, and shepherds. 
That's what your marriage needs. That's what your children need. Your children's children need. That's what your neighbors need. And that's what the world needs, whether they know it or not. And the world is filled with wolves. So all the more reason to be shepherds under the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. When Jesus said that about looking upon the multitude and being moved with compassion, he had been doing his healing ministry. He was early on in his ministry. He would go on to say that, that as he was describing people as being sheep without a shepherd and being moved with compassion and empathy, it says, then he said, their, their, their work is much, but the laborers are few, which means he's recruiting us to be leaders in the very context by which he said he were told he was moved with compassion and humanity is like sheep without a shepherd. Even when Jesus died on the cross, Isaiah describing it in Isaiah 53 said, all we like sheep have gone astray. But Christ is the Lamb of God who became a sheep to save the sheep from our folly. Great leadership in the human experience. The ultimate leadership in the human experience is men and women who have the mind of Christ and are being transformed to become shepherds. God wants us to have tender hearts, forgiving hearts toward humanity, to serve, to love, and to forgive. And if the day of the Lord finds us on our deathbed or in our final breath with a heart free from any malice toward anyone, with a day that started with a heart for the Lord and serving others, if the Lord looks upon our final day in the mid-afternoon and even that day reflects who we were that day because the whole compound effect of your life is to be a disciple daily and then you just become that person you're meant to be so you're not having to manufacture anything. You sincerely care about the people you work with, even those who wrong you. You sincerely care about your agitating neighbor even if they forced you out of the neighborhood because you can't live next door to them. But you're able to forgive and move on for who has time for malice and bitterness. And as we pray for people, as Jesus said, we pray for our enemies and forgive our enemies We get the mind of the Lord toward them so we can even almost be like Christ. And by the way, it's not something we would sign up for naturally. But if you think about it, what's a better look than Christ on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. So what can be more beautiful on the day of the Lord for us that we can look upon anyone and we might be being persecuted, wronged, even martyred uh, for our faith. But we can look upon our adversaries and say, Lord, forgive them. They don't, don't know what they do. What, by the way, body of Christ, could be a better entry to eternity than that? Nothing. I'll answer the question for you. Nothing. The one who dies loving, forgiving, and serving wins in the human experience in Jesus' name. The shepherd's heart always wins. And Jesus, the chief shepherd, laid down his life for the sheep. I'm not sure what God will require of me in the, you know, the last fourth quarter of my life or third period of hockey, if you will. Uh, whatever it is, it's the second half. And I don't know how it's going to end, but I will... I accept responsibility to have it end beautifully by keeping my heart tender toward the Lord and people and having a shepherd's heart for humanity. And there is the greatness that we all look for in the human experience. And there is greatness that's obtainable for every woman and man in this room and everyone who's born of the Spirit. A shepherd's heart, it's a beautiful ending for the human experience. It's worth getting after, apprehending, and demonstrating to the world around us. The second thing we see in this text that the Lord would have for us is in uh, kingdom leadership is action to do things that need to be done that may not be pleasant to be done, but must be done. 
This story of taking the city of Jebus is fascinating because this, of course, is Jerusalem. God recognizes Jerusalem as the capital of the Jewish people. The temple was built in Jerusalem. The son of David built it there, Solomon. It's been built upon itself many times and destroyed many times. I believe there's at least like 15 layers of different societies that lived and existed in Jerusalem since this time that Joab, on behalf of David, took the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. It really is the center of the universe. Jerusalem is the epicenter of the universe because that is where Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That is where Jesus rose from the grave for our hope and justification. That is where Jesus is prophesied to come again to return and to split the Mount of Olives and establish the kingdom. All those promises of the reign of Christ on planet Earth, which have to come to pass because they've not come to pass, they're going to happen centered from there. We know in the Harmony of the Bible that the whole world comes against Christ in his return and his people there in Megiddo, the valley of Megiddo, Armageddon, that it's Israel. And of all Israel, Jerusalem is, is the center point. So it's fascinating to think that the great general Joab under the great King David, that this text of these few verses is so profound in human history. Because if you think about it, when people think about World War III, where is this going to be? They always say, man, you know it's going to be in Jerusalem. It's going to go down. Like the Israeli government has the, the dome, right? They use the dome thing against the rockets. I mean, it is going to go down. If you don't know the end of the world, I'll tell you how it works. It goes down in Jerusalem. That's how it works. And here's Jerusalem 3,000 years ago. It was God's will that Jerusalem would become the capital of his people. That's proven through time. The city of David, the city of the king. And for 500 years, the Jews had lived in this promised land. And it was God's will to drive out the Canaanites. One way or another, your gods, your idols, your lifestyle, your worldviews, we're a people of covenant. This is our land. It's kind of like your house, right? Like we can't, you know, the church, the church's job isn't to take over every broadcast situation around the world and take over governments and, and like that. That's not how it works. And whenever the church tries to do that, it's, it's a colossal failure. But what the church does have responsibility for is its stewardship in its home, in the Christian home. This is the standard. And in the church itself, the kingdom of God. Or as Pastor Jeremy Foster used to say, the integrity of this sanctuary, the worship that happens here, the fellowship, the prayers, the teaching. This is our stewardship. My stewardship is not to run the state of California or the state of or the United States of America or the city of Huntington Beach. I can pray for our leaders and all that. Of course, we're called to pray for our leaders. But your stewardship is you, the person in the mirror. The stewardship is your marriage and what governs it and guides it. What's the standard? What's the core values of your life and your marriage and your children? The stewardship is your home and how you manage your finances and how you manage your time how you get along with your connection of relatives, even how you raise your animals. Because the Bible tells us that a man who values his animals is a good thing in the eyes of the Lord in the book of Proverbs. You learn a lot by people how they treat animals and societies by how they treat animals as well. See, our stewardship is the person in the mirror, the person of covenant if we're married, the children entrusted to us, our influence on our grandkids and future generations coming from our descendants, if you will. And it's our service in the local church, our accountability in that service, that's our stewardship. And so the church moves forward in action with our stewardship. 
When we know something is what God's called the church to do, then we need to do it. This morning, the men were here. And I reminded the men that one of the five core values, absolutely, of the, human, of the universe, listen closely, one of the five core values of the universe is the authority of the church of Jesus Christ on planet Earth in time, space, and matter. Jesus said, to you I give the keys of this kingdom. And there is no entity or organism or existence of human beings gathered together that even can be compared to the church of Jesus Christ. In all of its failures and frailties and blemishes, there is no place that's the pillar and ground of truth except the church. And to no one did Jesus say, I give you the pillars of the kingdom. Not to any ethnic group, not to any country in times past or times future. When Christ comes back in glory, however it plays out, the church will be standing. We've outlasted Rome and every other kingdom that comes and goes and will continue to do so. So when we think about taking action, stay with me because they took action, this context is taking action to do what must be done for the kingdom on behalf of the king. Don't be soft. We need to have fiber and we need to have a backbone and we need to have courage. Because every step forward with God's will, you got to fight for it. You want to be soft? Go home, turn on your TV, and waste your life. You can do that. But if you want to be something in the kingdom and something in time, you have to fight for the will of God in your life. And every step forward in the light is a step forward against the darkness being repelled a step backwards. And it's always a battle. Never underestimate what a battle it is to save one soul, to just share the gospel with one person. The great lesson of Vermont was 14 months to learn the value of one soul, Owen the dishwasher. And everything it cost me, my reputation, my wealth that I had, everything, Jennifer and I both, to lose everything and spend 14 months in a state that had no interest really as a whole in knowing the gospel, but to have one person, Owen, the 34-year-old dishwasher, say a prayer to receive Christ. And what we went through in 14 months in a dark land, in a dark place of spiritual battles for one soul was the most valuable lesson. Like Jesus and the apostles going across the Sea of Galilee, and there's a crazy man out of his mind. But to see him restored in a right mind and telling him to go home and tell your family what great things the Lord has done for you. A storm so fierce to save that crazy man that the fishermen who made a living on that sea said, we're going to die tonight. This is the storm that sinks our boat for one soul. Now more than ever, we have to have fiber and commitment to get after it and do whatever it is the Lord is calling you to do, whether you want to do it or not, because discipleship isn't feeling good. Discipleship is being disciplined, self-disciplined to do what the king is calling us to do as a disciple of his. And there's hard things to do sometimes for the kingdom, but it's worth doing. Because there's nothing more worth doing than obeying the Lord. In this story, we see some great leadership from David. First of all, <laughs> this is great leadership. He incentivizes and he delegates, right? I mean, this is basic. Like, he's like, hey, you incentivize people. The kingdom is a quality effort, and you have to go after things, and you have to be committed, and you have to hustle on, you have to have desire, determination, and persistence. And by the way, this is what I was really thinking about with this story with Joab and the leadership from David. Because David, he was incentivized. And he said, look, whoever, he learned this from Saul, right? Because Saul said, whoever takes down the giant gets my daughter to be a wife. But Saul wasn't true to his word because he 
drove David out, and David lost his first wife. David said, whoever takes the city, you're the commander. Whoever wins the job gets the job. Find a way, get it done. I've mentioned this before, but in studying people who live for the world and money, I'm always fascinated by what they do for money, and I think, how much more should we do it for the kingdom? But Henry Ford, Henry Ford, the grandson, when his engineers told him there was no way to build a V8 engine, he said, there is, and don't come in here till you found a way. That's just how things get done. And we do, we take action. David, he said, this is the capital. You don't, you don't let, when you know the Lord's giving you a yes, you say no to the devil's no. In other words, I'll say it this way. We do not accept no when it's God's yes. You've been listening to the Worship Generation Radio Ministry with Pastor Joey Baran. If you would like more information about the ministry of Worship Generation, visit us online at www.worshipgeneration.com where you can listen to the podcast of today's entire message. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our church YouTube channel. Worship Generation is located at 10350 Ellis Avenue in Fountain Valley, California. Our service times are Saturday evenings at 6 p.m. and Tuesdays at 7 p.m. For more information about Pastor Joey personally, you can follow him on his Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube channel. Thanks for listening, and God bless.